Thank you so much for coming today and worshiping with us here at Harvest. We're so glad that you're here. And uh, we want to do what we do every Sunday, which is just dive right into God's word together as we worship him. So grab your Bibles, and we're going to go to Acts chapter 11 this morning. If you need a Bible, there's some hardback black ones on the floor underneath the chairs there. We'd love for you to grab one of those and use that to follow along as well. Um, so we've kind of been in this series in Acts and working our way through the book of Acts. And right now we're looking at how we can join with the Holy Spirit to be on mission with God, achieving his purposes and running after his kingdom and uh, being a part of his big story throughout the ages. And so we're going to do the same thing today. We're going to look at how um, we can change our perspective to be on mission uh, more with, with Christ. And so um, a couple of years ago, our family got this, this board game, I think for Christmas or something, called Googly Eyes. I don't know if you guys have seen this game or not. Um, our girls love to play it, um, and I don't, um, because one of the things you have to draw, and I'm just not really good at drawing anyways, but here's the thing, you have to put these glasses on. Let's see the glasses. I, meant to bring, I actually meant to bring them and wear them for you. So you have these crazy glasses on, and in the glasses, there's like all these like lenses you put in that distort your vision. So not only are you trying to draw something, you're looking through these glasses and you cannot see anything as what you're drawing. So it's, it's kind of hilarious, but it's also hard, and, and it's just this kind of funny, fun game that the girls love to play. The problem is that when I'm drawing, everything comes out distorted because my vision is distorted by the lenses in the glasses. Okay? For a lot of people, I would say the majority of people in this world around us they're walking through all of life like that. They see things through distorted lenses. We all do it first. We're born into this issue where we see, we see life through our pride or through our greed or through our selfishness or through just ultimately sin that is in our heart and it distorts the way that we see things, which leads then to an empty, broken life that ultimately loses all of its purpose and fulfillment. Thankfully, God has a new set of lenses for those who call themselves his children. For those who follow Christ, he gives us a new way to see the world if we will look through the lenses of God's mission instead of the lenses of our own sinful heart. So here's kind of the big idea today as we walk through this. I want you to give you several different stories here on how if I see my whole life differently when I see through the lenses of God's mission. Through the lens of God's mission, sorry. I see my whole life differently when I see through the lens of God's mission. And we're going to see that in three distinct ways today through three distinct stories that show up here in the book of Acts. And so let's just kind of dive in there together in verse 1 of chapter 11. The first main point, if you want to write this in your notes, God's mission changes my view of the church. When I start to see things through the lens of God's mission, I see the church or church or religion in general differently. Let's look at this. Look at verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, so let's just break this apart a little bit. So it starts with the apostles and the brothers. So that's, re that's referring to the church leaders and then the church members in the original church there in Jerusalem. All right? This was the group that started the whole thing. 
The church started with them. It all grew out of these, this guy's like, this is, this is who he's talking about. And it says that they heard about the Gentiles. In other words, they heard about what we studied last week, how Peter had went and had shared the gospel with some Gentiles and they had gotten saved, right? Now, it's kind of interesting. They didn't have, you know, Insta stories or Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. Like, but this was such a big deal that word of mouth had made its way all the way back to Jerusalem that, hey, the Gentiles got saved, so they'd heard about this, and so then when Peter comes back to Jerusalem, he's been on this evangelistic journey, right, sharing the gospel with people. He comes back to home base. He comes back to Jerusalem. And as soon as he gets back, he gets railroaded by the circumcision party, which, why would you pick that name, right? Like, that's just like a weird, like, who comes up? I don't think they called themselves that, but that's what Luke is calling them here. Um, and because their viewpoint was this. That in order to be a Christian, in order to be part of the church, you first had to be Jewish. Right? You first had to be circumcised and be a part of the Jewish people and following the Jewish faith. And that was a prerequisite to becoming Christian, to becoming part of the Christian church. And so they're all on Peter here because he's like, you went to a Gentile party and you ate with Gentile people and now you're unclean and they're unclean and they're not even Jewish. Like they can't be Christians. Like what are you even trying to pull here, Peter? And so they're... They're nailing him on this. And what we would call this today, the view of this group, we call Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus theology, which basically means this. Jesus plus theology says that you need Jesus plus something else in order to truly be saved. That Jesus alone is not enough. You need Jesus plus X, Y, or Z in order to truly be saved. I want to give you some examples today, because we don't have this example. Arts isn't, hey, you have to be Jewish before you meet. We don't have that anymore in our culture. But there are five other types of Jesus plus theology that are in and around us that you need to be aware of so that you don't have this in your heart. And maybe uh, others around you are stuck in this, and you can be a light to them to help them see the truth of what the gospel really is. So let me give you a list here. Number one, Jesus plus theology. The first one is Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus good works. We might call this legalism in some cases. But the, the basic idea here is that you need to believe in Jesus plus follow the rules. Whatever the rules are for that particular group, right? So you need, to, you need Jesus plus you have to attend this many times at church or you have to serve on this many teams or you have to give this much money or there's all these rules that we have to follow. You have to dress this certain way in order to really be in with Jesus. In order to earn God's favor and keep it, you have to live by certain rules on top of your belief in Christ. The problem with that idea is, well, the Bible. Um, in Ephesians 2, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Peter makes it very clear that salvation is solely the work of Jesus Christ and a gift to God, to us. We don't do anything on top of Jesus to make salvation work. So Jesus plus good works isn't what it is. The second Jesus plus theology is Jesus plus a person. Jesus plus a person. This comes out in lots of different ways. I would call this like the middleman theology, right? Like I need to believe in Jesus, but in order to, to get to Jesus or in order to have a connection with Jesus, I have to have somebody in between me and Jesus to make it work. Maybe I have to have a pastor. 
that teaches me or tells me certain things. Maybe I have to have a priest that I go and I talk to on a regular basis in order to keep that connection. Maybe it's a, a saint of old like Mary or one of the other saints or an angel, and I have to pray to them in order to also have my prayers heard with Christ. We like Sometimes as evangelicals, we like to point to other denominations or other groups and say, they've got it all wrong. They, pray to, they talk to priests or they pray to angels or they pray to whoever. But you know what? Sometimes we have our own version of this. We can't always point at somebody else. Sometimes, even as evangelicals, we will start to believe that our faith is actually ours when it's actually tied through maybe a loved one in our life. So as long as I have mom or dad in my life, then my faith is strong because I'm kind of living it through them. But if they leave or if I go off to college, then all of a sudden it falls apart. Or it's through such and such grandparent that's always been there for me, and then when they finally pass away, I lose faith because my faith was actually routed through them rather than directly between me and Jesus. Or a spouse, or whatever the case might be. We don't need any other human to connect us to Jesus Christ because he came to be in a relationship with us directly. Hebrews chapter 10 says it this way. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, so the holy place was like a place in, it's referring the place in the temple where God's presence was, all right? So it's confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up, up for us through the curtain when he ripped the curtain in half upon his death of the holy of holies. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest, over the house of God, that high priest is Jesus himself. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's not a really easy scripture to understand, especially out of context of the whole chapter, but it's basically just saying this, that when Jesus died on the cross, his death opened up the path for us to talk with and be in relationship directly with God. We no longer had to go through sacrifices or a temple or priest or any other things. We are, can be directly connected to Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus a person. It's just Jesus. The third Jesus plus theology is Jesus plus denomination. We'll call this the religious version. Um, in other words, this idea is that if you don't belong to this certain denomination, then you're not really, you don't really belong to God. Because only this group, only this set of people have it right. And if you're not in this denomination, then you're not really a Christian. Now, when you look back at history, the reason why different denominations exist is because they usually had some falling out or some disagreement on some piece of theology or worship. Right? And there are definitely some churches out there that are preaching a false gospel. They're not preaching Jesus at all. And we're not talking about those, but I'm talking about actual gospel preaching evangelical churches that are true to God's word, there are still lots of different ones in different denominations that are still part of God's family. In fact, I can tell you, I personally know people in every single major Christian denomination today that I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I believe that they are saved and they love the Lord and they are going to be in. Nobody's got a corner on the market of what it means to be with God. If you got Jesus, you're good. You don't have to have another name attached to your faith to make it in. We're all one body in Christ. That's what Paul says, Ephesians 4. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all. All you need is one Savior. And if you have him, then you are one with every other believer of, God, of, of Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a certain denomination or church name. The fourth Jesus plus theology is Jesus plus ritual. Jesus plus ritual. This has the idea that I need to believe in Jesus and I need to do these certain traditions or I need to do these certain rituals. And what's tricky about this one is that oftentimes the rituals are actually good things that the Bible tells us to do. It's just that we take those good things and we elevate them to God things. We elevate them to, to equal to Jesus in terms of salvation when they're not. So for example, some might say, well, you have to believe in Jesus and you have to recite these certain prayers. Now, the Bible says a lot about praying, right? And we believe in prayer here at Harvest and we hit prayer hard and we love to pray. Prayer is super important. But nowhere in God's word does it say I have to say certain prayers in order to keep my salvation or earn my salvation with God. That ritual part is just not there. Baptism. We love baptism. Man, we celebrate baptism hardcore here at Harvest. We do it a couple times a year. Love it. Love for people to get up and proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ. But that's what they're doing. They're proclaiming the faith that has already saved them. They're not baptized so that they can be saved. Baptism doesn't complete your salvation. It doesn't add to your salvation. It doesn't save you in any way. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, all you did was get wet. That's all it means. Communion. We celebrate it regularly here at Harvest. It's an important thing. Jesus gave it to us as an act of worship to remember and to, to, to reflect on the sacrifice that he gave, and it's super important. But that piece of bread or that juice does not convey any special salvation or grace or anything in your soul or body when you take it. It's just us connecting to the Savior that we already have if you believe in Jesus. Some people really get stuck, especially on the baptism one or sometimes communion one. Here's Here's, here would be my point on that, okay? If you remember back to the crucifixion, Jesus is hanging on the cross, right? And on both sides of him, two thieves were also crucified with him. One of those thieves, the Holy Spirit moved on his heart, and he said to Jesus, today, Jesus, I'm sorry, forgive me, for I have sinned. And Jesus did forgive him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And he was saved there on the spot. Now, I wasn't there I've seen a couple videos, but I wasn't there. But it was not the, the, the practice of Roman guards to be like, oh, hold on, time out, stop the crucifixion. This guy got saved, get him down, we got to baptize him, and then we'll, we'll, finish the, the, we'll finish the crucifixion. I don't think that's the way it played out. Which means that guy died without ever having been baptized, without ever taking communion, without any of that. And yet, Jesus said, you're good his faith was enough. Jesus told us this in John 3, 16, right? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
Not he who believes and is baptized or he who believes and says this prayer or does this thing. Just he who believes. The last one is Jesus plus gifts. There are some that would say that you need to believe in Jesus, but you're not truly saved or fully saved until you have experienced certain spiritual gifts in your life. Until you've spoken in tongues or until you've had prophecy or until you've had some of these more ecstatic gifts, that's the sign that the Spirit has truly come into you and that you are truly saved. And if you don't have those gifts, then you're not there yet. Now listen, spiritual gifts are important. They're valuable. They're given to us by God for his glory and for our service and for his good. But gifts don't save you. And in fact, the Bible tells us that not everyone gets the same gifts anyways. God does not expect every one of us to have certain gifts the same. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes this. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirits. The varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All of this Jesus plus theology, here's the problem. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. The moment that you add anything to Jesus, you completely strip the gospel of all of its power. Because it proclaims to us that what Jesus did is not enough. His perfect life, his sacrifice, all of it, not good enough to save you. You need him plus something else. And when we start to believe that, that ruins everything. It's a complete lie that Satan has put into our world and into our heads so that he can distract us from true saving faith in Jesus alone. The biblical truth is simply this that all of us were born sinful. We were born with hearts that were rebellious against God and went our own way and did our own thing, and we violated the holiness of God with sin in our hearts, in our heads, in our behavior. And we couldn't fix it, and we couldn't get out, and we couldn't find a way to stop doing it. And so God said, I'm going to take care of this. He sent his son. He came in the flesh as Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and then he went to the cross and he died for our sins. All the wrath, all the punishment, the hell, everything that we deserved, he took it upon himself, and he died in our place as a substitute. And he paid the price for us, and he went to the grave, and three days later he rose back to life to show that he was God and to offer forgiveness to all who would believe. That's it. When he's hanging on the cross, some of his final words were, it is finished. Meaning I have done everything necessary. I have completed 100% what is needed to secure your salvation. There is nothing else that you have to do. And if you believe that and you believe in him and you repent of your sins, you will be saved. And if you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. 
You need to do it today, right now. Pray, ask him. And he'll save you from your sins. So this was the problem. This, this party, this group of Christians were believing a false gospel that they needed Jesus plus Judaism in order to be saved. So let's look, let's look how Peter responds. Look at verse 4. But Peter began and he explained it to them in order. So in other words, Peter's like, listen, all right, you, you got the little like sketchy gossip version. Let me give you the full story, right? Let me give you the whole thing. And then from verse 5 to 15, he basically recounts everything that we talked about last week. So I'm not going to take time to read that and reteach all that. If you, did, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to that if you need to. But here's this summary. He basically says, listen, I was up there, I was praying on top of the roof, and I fell into a trance or a vision, and God lowered down all these animals and said, hey, it's okay, all the animals are clean now, go ahead and eat. Right? And then, um, all of a sudden, I'm up there, I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's all this mean? And the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, hey, I sent some guys, they're downstairs, you need to go with them back to Caesarea. I know they're Gentiles, it's okay, just go. And so he goes down, he goes with the guys back to Caesarea. And by the way, I took some witnesses from Joppa, just so you know, it's not just me, right? I had some guys with me. So we all go to Caesarea, we find Cornelius. He tells me, hey, I had this vision. The angel told me to find you. You're supposed to tell me how to, how to come to God. And so at that point, he says, I start sharing the gospel. And the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, just like it fell on the Jews at Pentecost. And then look at verse 16. It says, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's like, I was standing there and the Holy Spirit came down and I remembered Jesus told us that one day we were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This must be it. Look, God's doing something. And if God's doing something, guess what? I'm not going to get in the way. If you got a problem with this, guys, you need to take it up with him. That's basically what Peter's telling them. And then verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. Yeah, they did. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. I love it, right? They, they fell silent, and then they glorified God. Also, they didn't have anything else to say because God showed up and said, I'm doing this. One of the commentaries I read by Bruce, it says, their criticism ceased and their worship began. Because the astounding news finally clicked in their heads that God was doing an, an immeasurably bigger thing than they could ever imagine. It was expanding his church well beyond the Jewish people to all people and all nations. God was changing the way that they saw the church. It was much bigger and much better than they could ever imagine. Recently, Courtney and I, um, were, have, we've been working on, on planning a, a family vacation for our family. And, um, you know, it's always a lot of work. You're looking at all the different options. You're trying to figure out what's the best fit for your family and what's the best fit for your money and all this other kind of stuff. And so um, I tend to be the bigger planner in our family. But the other night, Courtney was all in it, man. She had the charts going and she was looking at the options and the codes and the cross-references and I'm not going to lie, it was pretty hot. But I'm just like, she was, she was all up in the planning of the vacation. I was like, all right, this is, this is good. Because we we're trying to figure out, like, what is the best fit? What's, what's, what's going to make it make sense for us? We were shopping for what was going to fit our wants and our desires, which is good when you're going for a vacation. 
The problem is too often than not, we do the same thing when we think about the church. And we start looking at church as which one has the best options for me? Which one fits my desires and my needs and where I wanna go? And which one has the music I like and the clothes I wanna wear and the people are a certain way and the children's ministry has this and, and they get out at a certain time or the building, like, and we start thinking that the church is about us. But that's not what the church is here for. Jesus didn't say, go build a church that meets everybody's needs and agendas. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, I'm building my church for a mission and for a purpose and it's going to achieve something and that's what we're doing here. The purpose of our church is to help lost people find victory over death and sin and come to know the truth about Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the church then. Peter got it. These other people were just now starting to. And we need to get it. Do I see the church that way? When I look at church, when I think about who we are and what we're doing here and why we're doing this, do I see it as a, a mission group that's, that's out to bring the gospel to the lost and to make disciples of all nations? Or do I see it as a place that I get to go and see some friends and have some coffee and feel better about myself and get built up a little other, if you're trying to feel better for yourself, it's probably not the church you want to come to. But if, just saying, like, if it's just about me feeling something, then I think we're missing it. Ask yourself this question. Is my view of God's church more about my desires or God's mission? Is my view of God's church more about my desire or God's mission. That's the first thing. Second thing, number two, second point, God's mission changes my view of my plans. Changes my view of my plans. Look at verse 19. It's a new story now. It says, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So this is actually now kind of pointing back to a previous story we already studied in Acts. Remember Stephen, who was martyred for the faith and was stoned to death? And then after that happened, the Christians were fearful for their lives, and so a lot of them spread out, right? They, they dispersed into the, the wider area, and that was not their choice. That was not their plan, right? Like if they had their choice, they would have stayed in Jerusalem and, and just been together and been the church, but God had a different plan. So God changed their plan and used persecution to run them out. And it says they ended up in Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. These are all Roman cities that were far away from Jerusalem, outside Judea, outside of the land of the Jews. But there were many Jews living there because throughout the decades and throughout the centuries prior, Jews had been dispersed to different areas because of different wars and, and persecutions and other things like that. And so they go to these other cities and they find some Jews. So they start speaking the word of God. They start speaking the gospel 
to their Jewish brothers and sisters, and they get saved. But they were only speaking to the Jews. They hadn't heard about Cornelius and his crew yet, right? So they didn't know it was okay. So they're just talking to the Jews about the word. But here's what's awesome about it. That even though God had sent them away from Jerusalem, even though he had changed their plans and they were out of their element, and this was not what they wanted, this was not their choice, everywhere they went, they kept sharing the gospel. They didn't stop just because God changed their plans. They were still on mission for what he was doing. This is what we call everyday missionaries. These weren't apostles. These weren't church leaders. These were regular Christians, just like you and me, that were sharing their faith everywhere they went, no matter how God changed their plans. So they go and they start sharing their gospel with the Jews, but then it says some spoke to the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists here are a little bit different than the Hellenists we saw a couple of chapters ago. It's, a, it's actually a different word in the Greek. It's just only one word in our English to translate it. So here, it's actually talking about Greek-speaking Gentiles. Before, it was Greek-speaking Jews. This is actually Gentiles that they start sharing the gospel with. Evidently, they didn't really care about the other guys, and so they just start um, getting into it, and everybody's like, oh, you're not supposed to be talking to those people. And they're like, that's all right, we're going to do this. But notice it says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Anytime you are stepping out in faith to share the gospel or to to make disciples or to follow the mission and God shows up and then his hand starts working, man, you know you're in a good spot, right? So God's working. Obviously, he's okay with them sharing with the Gentiles. And a great number believed because as they were faithful to share, God was faithful to save. That's how it works, right? We share the gospel. We don't save people. We share the gospel and then God does the saving. And he does that right here in Antioch. And then the report came back to Jerusalem. So they heard about, hey, there's more people getting saved in Antioch. We need to check this out. So they send Barnabas, right? Barnabas was their guy. So they send him, I go, check this out. Is this legit? Verse 23. So when Barnabas, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So they send Barnabas up to check this out in Antioch. And I love how it describes Barnabas here as a man that was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a great description. Wouldn't you love at the end of your life, people would be like, man, he was just full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Like if that was on your tombstone, like that would be a huge win. So Barnabas goes, and he sees what's happening, and he saw the grace of God reaching these people, and he was glad. He was exo- and he exhorted them, like, keep going after it, man. Just keep doing it. He confirmed God is definitely working here. And because he saw God working, guess what? Now Barnabas's, Barnabas's plans changed. Like, he was good in Jerusalem. He was doing this thing. He's supposed to go check it out and come back. No, no, no. I need to stay here now because God's doing something, and God wants to use me here. And so God changed Barnabas' plans, but he knew he was in over his head. So I need somebody to help me. He goes to Tarsus to find Saul, right, and bring him back, which is kind of an interesting choice because up to this point, what we've seen of Saul is everywhere he goes, like, creates trouble and death threats, and, like, like God's doing something awesome in Antioch. Let's go get Saul. Yeah, that's a good plan. But evidently Barnabas knew something we didn't know. So he goes and gets Saul, and he brings him to Antioch to help, and it says for a whole year they met and taught the disciples in Antioch. Change of plans. Not Jerusalem, not Tarsus anymore. Now it's Antioch. God's doing a new thing. We're all in. I want to be a part of what God is doing. Wherever that's at, whatever that is, I'm in. 
And what we find out as we look further down the line in the book of Acts is this was all part of God's strategic plan, his strategic mission, because Antioch was the perfect city for an international church and ascending base that would reach all of the nations. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time, 500,000 people. It was a multicultural city with people from all different nations who had come together to create this new city that had been built. And it was a major commerce and cultural hub, so people were constantly coming and going to other cities in all their trading and business. And so God's going to use all of this, all of these characters, all this to change their plans and to accomplish his mission through this new set of believers, through this new church in Antioch, who will ultimately be the ones who send Saul, Paul, out on his missionary journeys that plant churches all over the world. What we need to see in this, friends, is that God's plan is greater than my plan. Always every time, without fail, God's plan is always greater than my plan. I threw in a little sign there just for you math people, all right? Just giving you a little push this morning, okay? We have to get off this idea that we are the ones who always get to figure out the best plan. God's got a mission, God's got a plan, and when we get on that, everything is better. When I, uh, when I first went to college, um, the first plan was I was going to be a psychologist. I started, and I um, and quickly found out, I was like, I don't really know that I want to spend 50 hours a week listening to other people's problems. So, um, so then I was like, well, I like psychology, so I'll teach psychology. And so I went and got a psychology degree and a teaching certificate, and I taught psychology for several years. Um, and then I, once I got into education, I was like, well, I'm pretty good with technology. I like that. So I went and got my master's in educational technology to start doing technology for our school district. Um, but then shortly after that, my dad approached me about being a part of his company and doing project management training. So then I had to go get certified in project management training, and so I did that for a couple years. And so this was kind of my plan. Like, I was planning out, okay, this, this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing. And then God was like, yeah, it's none of that. None of that. Um, we're going we're gonna to stop all that, and you're going to go into full-time vocational ministry. No training for ministry, no training for ministry. I had done a little bit in our local church. That was pretty much it, because I said, this is what we're going to do. And when we gave into, when we submitted to that plan, God's plan, I'll tell you what, the last 10 plus years have been so much better than anything I could have imagined in those other career fields, in those other areas, because it was his plan and not Micah's plan. And it's always better. And I could look back and we could look back on those all those degrees and all that money that was spent and all that certification and be like, man, that was all just a waste because that's, but God's using all of that. He uses all of that to make you who you are, to give you the skills, to do what he's calling you to do. Whatever, he's, whatever you've come through, it's not a waste. It's what God's using to get you to the place where he wants you on his plan. And it's better. And it's greater. The young woman who has the full degree and had the career aspirations and is set to go and doing great and growing in the company but then she has some babies and decides, you know what? I think God's actually telling me to stay at home and, and be a homemaker and homeschool and, and love my kids and make disciples right here in my own home. Praise the Lord, right? It's the, it's the retired couple who is ready to go and play golf and travel and have fun, but they're like, you know what? 
I think God's telling us to go and be a part of this new church plant and, and help spread the gospel and make disciples right here in our own neighborhood. Florida's a lot warmer, but we got to make disciples here in St. Louis, right? It's the college student who has the plan and has got the degree and is headed to the city that, is, that they've always wanted to live in. They're going to have the great career. And God says, well, that's nice and all, but why don't you go over here and be a missionary in this country and share the gospel with these people who don't even know me yet? Sometimes God changes our plans, but they're always better. If you'll step into that in faith, it's always, always better. You've maybe heard the saying, God, uh, men plan and God laughs. Every time. Because he knows his plans are better. God's plans are greater than my plan. So ask yourself this question. Is my view of my life more consumed with my plans or God's plans? Is my view of my life, when I'm, when I'm walking through day by day, looking ahead, what's next, what's next, am I more concerned with what Micah wants and Micah's plans, or am I looking at what does God have? What does God want? What's his mission for my life? Third and final point today, God's mission changes my view of my money. Oh, he just said the money word. That's not good. Just, just calm down. It's going to be okay, I promise. God changes my view of my money. Look at this in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so last little story here in this section. We find out that there's some prophets that have come from Jerusalem to Antioch. So now we're back in Antioch again. And one of them's name is Agabus. And Agabus starts giving a prophecy. It says here, foretold by the Spirit. So this is like a legit prophecy. You know, they're, they're saying, hey, this is, this is what the Holy Spirit's saying. And they, he says that there's going to be a great famine that is coming. And we know from the historical records in the days of Claudius that there were actually many regional famines in that area, specifically in the area of Judea, and Jerusalem. And so the disciples hear this, and it says the disciples determined. Did you catch that word there? Look at that. The disciples determined, not the apostles, not the elders, not the church leaders, the everyday Christians got together and said, listen, this is our church. We have some ownership here. We have responsibility here. We need to step up. And they determined that everyone, we're all in this together, we're a team, we're a family, everyone, according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. Now, that's a key phrase. Let's unpack that for a second. Just like in today's church, in that church back then, there were all different types of people with all different levels of wealth and income. It wasn't like everybody was the same. Everybody's on different different, uh, plans there in terms of what's coming in and how much they have access to. And so it says that everyone gave based on their ability. So in other words, those who had more were able to give more. Those who had less were able to give less, but everyone was able to give something. We used to say it like this at our previous church, not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. 
God's not looking for equal giving. He doesn't want everybody to give the same dollar amount. But he is looking for all of his people to give equal sacrifice based on their ability and the way that he's blessed them. And so they all decided, according to their ability, to send relief to the brothers in Judea, to send an offering to the church in Jerusalem who needed their help to honor that church, to honor the Lord. Jerusalem had a need. Antioch had an abundance. And so we're going to help them out. And we're going to send some stuff down there so that God's mission can go forward, so the church can benefit, and so more people can come to know Jesus. Now here's the catch on this whole thing. And when I, when I caught this, this was from another pastor a while back, but it just really changed the way I thought about this. In this situation... God could, God could have provided for that Jerusalem church any way he wanted to. He could have snapped his finger, stopped the famine. He could have dropped some extra, you know, wheat on them. He could have done like, he, God could have done anything he wanted to do. But he used Antioch. And here's why. God didn't need their money, but they needed to give it. God didn't need their money to fix the problem but they needed to give it so they could be part of the solution. It was a heart thing. Jesus tells us that our heart follows our money, right? He said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That our heart follows our money. So oftentimes God will ask us to put our money in to his mission so that our heart and our lives will step further into his mission. It's not for him. It's for us so that we get to be a part of the great things that God is doing. We had, uh, you know, we just celebrated Christmas, obviously, and uh, one of the traditions that we started at our house is that we have three little girls and that they buy gifts for one another, right? And so um, in the first couple of years, I would take them to the store and I'd say, all right, you have $10, pick out a gift you want for your sister, and they would pick something out, and I'd pay for it. We'd take it home and wrap it, and they'd give it to their sisters, and it was great. They got to, to experience giving. They got to experience the joy of generosity and started building that in them. But then I realized, like, this was good, but it could be better. And so the last couple years, we've done the same thing, but the girls have to pay for the gift themselves. They have to go to their piggy bank and take money out and go to the store, and they get to choose how much they spend, and they get to choose what the gift is and the whole thing, but they, they pay for it with their own money. We take it home, we wrap it, and then they give it to their sisters, and they love it. And it's good because now they have an even greater investment in what they're giving because they've paid into it. God does the same thing with us. He doesn't need our money, but he lets us give so that we can be a part of what he's doing. And it gives us a chance to step further into his mission. God doesn't need your money, but you need to give it to him. Every week here at Harvest, we take an offering. Does that support our church? Absolutely. Do we need money to function? Sure we do. But you know what? God can provide for us any way he wants to. But the primary way he wants to is through us giving to him and to his mission. We do special projects, missions projects. Today we're going to announce a thing for Sanctity of Life Month, like Give. Give to those things freely. Let the Lord encourage your heart and draw you out in mission. Pretty soon, Lord willing, 
Things have been going really well as we've been looking at this church at Afton Building. We're starting to maybe look at drawing up some plans with an architect, looking at contractors. But you know what that means? It's going to take some money. So there's probably a campaign coming where we're going to have to give some extra to be able to get a permanent place where we can make disciples and see the church grow and more people come to know Jesus. And that can be scary and that can be hard. And like, I don't know if I have enough to give. And It's okay. Each to his ability. We get to be a part of what God is doing. That's what it is. That's what God's doing here. So here's the question you need to be praying through and asking yourself for these things. Is my view of my money more consumed with my mission or God's mission? Is my view of my money more consumed with my mission, what I want, my plans, my stuff, or with God's mission, how he wants to use that and make much of his kingdom? All three of these areas, church, plans, money, It's about God changing our perspective, God changing our view. I said this at the beginning. I see my whole life differently when I see through the lens of God's mission. Everything changes. The money, the plans, the church, all of it. You know, Jesus told his disciples one time when they were walking around before he he went into heaven, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Remember him saying that? You might remember that from Jesus. What he's saying there is, sacrifice your life for my mission. Sacrifice who you are and what you have to be a part of what I'm doing. Right? And so Jesus here, he's, he's calling us to the same thing today. We're disciples just like they were. He's saying, listen, give me your faith. Give me your plans. Give me your life. Give me your money. Give me all of it for my mission. And so our job as followers of Christ is just to surrender. Surrender who we are, surrender what we have, give to the church, give to the mission, let our lives be seen through the lens of God's mission, not just our own. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit will change our hearts and he'll provide everything we need and he'll lead us into a better plan. Why don't you stand with me? I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing just a song of response and surrender to the Lord. Just use this time for yourself, like wherever your heart's at. Maybe, maybe something I said today struck a chord. Maybe it's with the money. Maybe it's with future plans for your life. Maybe it's for the way that you're interacting with the church. Maybe it's something else. But is there some area of your life that you're like, I need to surrender this to God's mission. And let's just take this time to just let the Holy Spirit speak to us and us respond through prayer and through song. Heavenly Father, God, we just come to you now. We thank you, God, so much. Lord, just for the truth of your word, for, for the power of story and for the, the testimony of these disciples who have went before us and have learned and followed you so faithfully, God, that we might be able to do the same. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've called us to your mission, that you've given us a purpose and a future. Lord, we owe you everything. Lord, we are nothing without you, nothing without Jesus. Lord, all we have is death and sin. So, Father, help us now. Lord, recalibrate our hearts, recalibrate our view of life so that we see it first and foremost through the lens of your mission. Jesus, you are enough for us. Everything else, our faith, our plans, our money, Lord, we submit all of it to you. 
to your mission. Christ Jesus, you are enough for us. Stir our hearts today.